Welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. The China in the World podcast is brought to you by Carnegie China and hosted by me, Paul Hanley. Welcome, everyone, to the second edition of Carnegie China's Distinguished Speaker Series for 2022. I'm Paul Hanley, and I'm the director of Carnegie China. A Carnegie China's Distinguished Speaker Series is an effort to bring together leading experts on international affairs in China to discuss current issues related to U.S. foreign policy, China, and the world. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by my friend Anya Manuel. To examine several of the major crises facing the international order, and in particular, the implications of the war in Ukraine、uh, and growing tensions in the Taiwan Strait, among others. Prior to the pandemic, Carnegie China used to hold these distinguished speaker events at our center in Beijing, but as the pandemic、uh, continues to per- persist, in particular in China,、uh, we've moved much of this、uh, programming to a virtual format. Um, but it's a it's a terrific pleasure、uh, to be able to host my good friend Anya today. Thank you for joining us today, Anya. I'm so happy to be here, and I wish we could be in person, Paul. Someday soon. Sorry, I missed you when you were in in the U.S. this summer. Well, I'm sure that we'll have an opportunity to meet somewhere in Asia soon, hopefully in China.、Um, for the、uh, for our listeners、um, who、uh, who do not know Anya's background,、uh, which I don't expect it to be many,、uh, but Anya is a former diplomat. She's an author.、Uh, she's well known as an advisor,、uh, an expert on foreign policy issues. She is the co-founder and partner, along with、uh, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, former National Security Advisor Steve Hadley, and former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates. In Rice Hadley Gates and Manuel LLC, a strategic consulting firm, helps U.S. companies navigate international markets. It's a pretty terrific lineup、uh, of what I would call long ball hitters、uh, that do some pretty serious and strategic work. Anya、uh, is the also the executive director of the Aspen Strategy Group and the Aspen Security Forum, premier bipartisan forum on foreign policy in the U.S. The last Aspen Security Forum just took place in July, featured、uh, panel discussions with well-known、uh, experts and leaders on foreign policy.、Uh, as I mentioned to Anya recently in a conversation I had with her, I watched almost all of the sessions online, and thank you, Anya, for posting all of the sessions online.、Um, it, it's quite easy to go to the Aspen Security Forum website. Uh, and I would encourage all of our listeners to check it out. There were some really、uh, fascinating and important discussions. Anya was also invited this year.、Um, it's been a great year for Anya, and I've told you that recently, Anya,、uh, to join the prestigious Defense Policy Board,、uh, and that's quite an honor with other luminaries, foreign U.S. policymakers, former Secretaries of State, former National Security Advisors.、Um, Anya and I、uh, had the opportunity to serve in government together. That's where we met. Um, in the uh, uh, Bush administration, where Anya served at the State Department as a special assistant covering Asia to the then Undersecretary for Political Affairs, Nick Burns, who is now our ambassador in China. Anya is also the author of a critically acclaimed book called *The Brave New World: India, China, and the United States*, published in 2016. So once again, Anya, thank you for joining us, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. 
Before we kick off, uh, just a couple of quick uh, uh, points. First, we do want to have the audience ask questions during our discussion, and I'll try to save some time uh, at the end. Or as I get questions, if they come in and, and they look uh, like they're ready to go, we'll, we'll do it as they come in. Um, but use the uh, chat function on YouTube. And second, we'll post the a recording of this discussion. If you don't get to catch all of it, you can uh, go back. Um, uh, it'll be an episode on our China in the World podcast, and you'll be able to find this conversation and all of our previous online discussions on our website um, and all major pod podcast streaming platforms. So with that, uh, let's kick off. Anya, let's start out uh, where I know a lot of folks are interested uh, in discussing, and that is around the Taiwan Strait. In recent weeks, uh, tensions there have reached their highest point um, probably in, in three decades. Um, and I don't think that's an overstatement. As a response, of course, to Speaker of the House Pelosi's visit to the island, China, as um, most everyone knows, launched a series of unprecedented military drills in and around the Taiwan Strait. They've launched ballistic missiles over, over Taiwan um, and have mobilized over 200 aircraft, 50 naval vessels. They also, in the U.S.-China context, canceled or suspended eight military and cooperative dialogues with the United States. And uh, in their new Taiwan white paper, uh, first white paper to be published in over two decades, and I encourage listeners to read that, they've removed a number of previous pledges. One in particular is, not, is to not send military personnel to Taiwan in the event of reunification. So some pretty big changes. Um, and I want to just start here, if we could, Anya, just first give us a sense, you know, in your view, how acute uh, is the risk of conflict in the Taiwan Strait? And as you look at the Chinese leadership, you know, how urgent do you think it is uh, in terms of an issue uh, for Xi Jinping, reunification? Um, and, you know, how do you think the United States should respond to deter, deter conflict? How can we be successful doing that? and uh, managing tensions with uh, with China. So very easy question to kick things off. <laughs> Nothing complicated, um, but let's start there. Thanks so much, Paul. You and I will solve all the conflicts in, in the first five minutes of speaking. Well, I think you summed it up perfectly in preparation for this. You know, geopolitically, we are in for a wild ride. Buckle your seatbelt. So it's not just Taiwan, but I know we're gonna talk about Russia, Ukraine. It's just, the level of conflict and worry in the and instability in the international system, I think, is much higher than it has been in recent years, even. And just speaking to Taiwan specifically, you summarized exactly the Chinese reaction in response to Speaker Pelosi's visit. It was extreme by any measure. And I think China gained something very important from the speaker's visit. And that is with these exercises, which are difficult to respond to because it's not military attack, there's nothing you can really do, they're merely exercising. Uh, the Chinese have gained leverage over Taiwan and over us. They disrupted commercial shipping, they disrupted airlines coming in and out. And that seems like a trick that can ramp up and ramp down again at will. And at some point, does that cause real harm to Taiwan's economy? At some point, if they're constant or frequent Chinese exercises around the island of Taiwan. What happens to people not insure commercial ships anymore? You know, so they've really gained an important leverage point here. 
you asked about the risk of conflict. When I talk to my colleagues um, and friends at the Pentagon, I don't think anyone in the U.S. currently assesses that an all-out Chinese invasion of the island of Taiwan is imminent. But there are a lot of other things they can do to make life difficult for Taiwan and to force what Xi Jinping calls in every speech a, quote, peaceful reunification. As you know well, Paul, there's an election coming up, Tsai Ing-wen, in about 15, 16 months. She's been a very unusually good leader for Taiwan, I would say. It's a little unclear what comes after her. There's almost certainly going to be election meddling, disinformation, all that playbook going to play out. Um, you can imagine a, a Chinese encroachment on the kind of outlying islands of Taiwan that are closer to the Chinese mainland, frankly, than um, to Taipei. And you could imagine all sorts of other things, a blockade of uh, American military materiel coming in there. So there are a lot of ways that this can get uncomfortable and dangerous without being a full out invasion. Yeah. I'll stop there for you. Yeah, I, no, I, think, uh, I just, I, I think those are all good points. And I, uh, you know, your point on the Chinese not wasting a, a good crisis um, to take it to their advantage. I think is a very important one. And it seems that they, you know, they have been successfully changed the status quo of the activities that are that they're conducting now around Taiwan. And we do have a bit of a new normal, which puts uh, the situation in even more difficult, um, uh, you know, uh, status. Um, in terms of deterring conflict, there there is this, there has been this ongoing debate in the U.S. about our long-standing policy of strategic ambiguity. Um, that is to say, we're not going to sort of say to the Chinese uh, in any declaratory policy or any statements exactly what we might do in the event uh, that the Chinese uh, were to try to take Taiwan by force. Uh, but that also means we, we don't give a blank check to Taiwan. Um, and I think some people often forget there's a there's a part of the strategic ambiguity that's for Taiwan as well. If they think we're going to be there no matter what, um, you may have political leaders that push the envelope in ways that uh, may run against U.S. interests. But nevertheless, there's been a debate. Um, Richard Haas uh, really pushed this forward in an article that he wrote uh, talking about maybe we need to clarify strategic ambiguity. Biden himself on multiple occasions has said the U.S. would intervene in a conflict in the Taiwan Strait, but then the administration has had to walk back his comments. Um, there's proposals in Congress now, the Taiwan Policy Act. It's got to work its way, of course, through uh, Congress before it gets to the point where it can be voted on. But apparently one of the proposals in there uh, is that Taiwan would become a major non-NATO ally which I which I assume would indicate some sort of commitment to rendering Taiwan to coming to Taiwan's defense. How do you see the issue around strategic ambiguity? Should yeah. the U.S., as Richard Haas says, you know, move to more clarity? Um, how best can the U.S. deter conflict in the Taiwan Strait in this regard, in your view? Thank you for setting it up so thoroughly. Um, I believe that strategic ambiguity is important. I'm not with Richard Haas on this one, although I respect him. I know um, Harry Harris is out there too, saying it's time to just drop the strategic ambiguity. 
I actually think Biden has been kind of masterful in this. He sort of said what he believes three times. <laughs> and, and there's ambiguity, but there's not really ambiguity in this president's mind, at least. Um, I firmly believe that the Taiwan Policy Act would be a mistake. I mean, you and I worked in the executive branch. It's very hard when Congress meddles too much in the foreign policy of the United States in a way that makes it then difficult for the executive to maneuver and to have any flexibility. I mean, you saw that, frankly, with the Pelosi visit. I don't think anyone in Taiwan, in, in mainland China, understands or believes that actually President Biden doesn't have control over the Speaker of the House's travel schedule. They don't. They're two separate and co-equal branches of government. It's just a very unusual thing in our system. So um, I would hope that um, the Taiwan Policy Act doesn't pass in its current form. I think the strategic ambiguity continues to be an important thing because we used to be uh, what Condi Rice always calls a rheostat in Taiwan-China relations, where if the if Mainland China was being too aggressive, we would tell them to tamp it down. If Taiwan was getting too close to declaring independence, we would hold them in line. So we were kind of keeping stability in that area. Now, recently, we've leaned much more in favor of Taiwan, I would say, for good reason, because uh, Beijing has been much more aggressive in that part of the world. But I don't think we want to lose that role of a much more thoughtful arbiter in the dispute rather than just purely taking one side. So I do continue to believe that there is a role, an important role for a strategic ambiguity. And you asked more generally, Paul, how should we respond to deter conflict and manage tensions? I've said it a little bit on the on the diplomatic side. And I think that's actually what the Biden administration is trying to do. You know, it's it's difficult for them right now, but I think that's the path they are on, and rightfully so. On the military side, I think it's quite important, and our military understands this, that we make Taiwan what Michelle Flournoy has memorably called a porcupine, you know, giving right. them the things that they actually would need to deter an invasion or something short of an invasion by the mainland. You saw in Ukraine how effective that is if there's a motivated uh, domestic group that wants to hold out, doesn't want to be invaded. And so for that, you need smaller things. You need missiles, you need small arms, you need things that aren't the big exquisite platforms that frankly the Taiwanese often ask for. And if you talk to some Taiwanese military officials, mostly the, an older generation, I think there's a little bit of thinking there still of, oh, well, maybe we'll take back the mainland, so we need all of these fancy jets and things. That seems unrealistic, just given the size of the, of the two countries. So I'm for the porcupine strategy. Yeah. No, those are great points. And I I, I tend to agree with you on strategic ambiguity, um, if for no other reason, as you described the Rio stat, um, we often, because right now we're worried about Chinese coercion, we're worried about salami slicing, the, the gray zone tactics, the increasing pressure we see being put on Taiwan. So, you know, we're, we're, we're signaling more to China, we're pushing back more on China. I was China director when President Chen Shui-bian was in Taiwan, and yeah. he was pushing the envelope in ways that uh, when we were fighting two wars, one in Afghanistan and one in Iraq, uh, we didn't want that uh, instability in the Taiwan Strait. 
That's right. um, and again, that strategic ambiguity, um, you know, if, as you said, there's an election in January 2024 in Taiwan, who knows who the next president's going to be? We've had a very uh, reasonable and moderate leader in Taiwan under fortunate. So I agree with you on That's that. Exactly I was referring to. That's right. Um, the, um, you know, I just want to talk a little bit about, I mean, you were in the government in the Bush administration. You've seen China policy over quite a long uh, arc. Um, you know, I hear from Chinese friends a lot, and you may hear the same, that, you know, they believe there's very little difference between the Trump administration's approach on China and that of the Biden administration's approach to China. For one thing, what they say is, look, the Biden administration has accepted this framing of strategic competition. And, you know, prior to that, since normalization of U.S.-China relations in 1979 under the Carter administration, every administration followed this conceptual framework of engagement. And so Trump changed that to strategic competition. Biden picked that right up. And so they don't see, at least in China, much of a difference. How do you see that question? What, in your view, uh, are the main areas of continuity? Uh, and where are the policy changes, the important policy changes between those two administrations? Well, I think our Chinese friends are mostly right. There's more continuity than difference between Presidents Trump and Biden on their China policy, some important differences that I'll get into. But there's continuity for one important reason, and that is President Xi Jinping. You know, the policies, you can argue <laughs> a little bit like a, a marriage that's bickering. You know, you can argue who started it. But unfortunately, we've come so far in a what I would consider a dangerous and unfortunate direction from even when I wrote the book that you very nicely referred to that came out in 2016, when there still seemed to be a path forward for these two great powers to jockey along, you know, maybe having conflict in certain areas, but cooperating on the big issues and finding ways to manage our differences. With Xi Jinping's what the United States, and I think increasingly Europe and much of the India, certainly, and much of the rest of the world sees as a really aggressive foreign policy, the end of hide and bide. And with um, the reliance, you know, the meddling in the Taiwan Strait, <laughs> the increased incursions over the border in the high Himalayas between India and China in the South China Sea. I don't have to tell you all this, Paul, but um, we're seeing a China that worries the world. And if there could be confidence building measures on both sides, I think the Biden administration in particular would very happily go back to a much more moderate view of US and much more cooperative view of US-China relations. In fact, when you look at Tony Blinken's first speech on China, he talked about this, you know, compete where we must, cooperate where we can. They were really trying. And by the way, and I would say this with all respect for our Chinese friends, in response to a, what they saw as a provocation, the speaker's visit to Taiwan, even though there's nothing illegal or wrong with her visiting, um, the worst thing to do is to stop talking. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the problems that the Biden administration has had is that continually 
they make an effort at communication and they're rebuffed by the Chinese side. And I understand that on the military side, the PLA, Chinese military to US military, there were finally some really good conversations going. And of course, this mini crisis and kerfuffle pushed us all the way back. So I would say, the U.S. is willing to hold out an open hand and have a better relationship, but it needs to be done on a basis of fairness and a basis of reciprocity. Yeah, good, great points. Um, and your your description of the the dueling narratives uh, between the United States and China, the you know the the difficult marriage that is taking place, and it's the bit of a blame game, right? And um, you know, I think many Americans see it as you've described it, which is, you know, we're looking at a very different China moving along a different trajectory and different set of policies, much more aggressive, many of which undermine uh, threaten U.S. and the interests of our partners and allies. But in China, of course, you know, you hear I mean, a very different narrative, right? That's right. That's right. And Paul, I would add one thing, because you and I are such veterans of, you know, you lived in China for years and years. It's difficult for you to go back. Most of my friends think all of my friends who were expats living in China, of which there were many, have left because of COVID, but also because of the political crackdown, because it was getting very difficult. The track two dialogues that you and I were always involved in, they're almost all moribund, and that's not for lack of trying on the US side. And frankly, many Chinese would want more dialogue, but there's less and less space for open dialogue between the US and China. And frankly, there's, as you know well, there's less and less space for the Chinese to be open and free and express themselves internally. So it's it's frankly dangerous for many of our friends in China to talk to the likes of us. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I still think that, and, you know, I have, Friends that may maybe disagree with me, but I, I still think the track two dialogues are important. I think you're correct in that, you know, the, the kind of candid conversations, um, you know, the the degree that we that they can be candid on on the Chinese side, I think is has been constrained in this environment. Um, and it, it makes it much more, much more difficult, but I still think it's important to do. And, you know, it's important, frankly, that uh, we, you know, we continue to communicate. As you said, um, at a time where tensions are as bad as they've been for decades, the communication channels now uh, are really closed down because the Chinese have paused or canceled a lot of that. Um, and we have a very, we've had, this is a longstanding disagreement with China um, that when there are crises in the relationship and there's tension in the relationship. You remember in the, after the EP3 crisis, um, Secretary of State Colin Powell tried to call his counterpart. It took him, you know, roughly a week to get a hold yeah. of him. So, you know, we, we, we see these things different. We want to open the apertures for communication. On the Biden administration's policy, you talked about the areas of continuity. Where do you see uh, changes, uh, important changes from the Trump administration? And, and and just more broadly, you know, from a you know fifty thousand stand level fifty thousand feet standpoint, you know where are they doing well, and and you know where do you think the administration needs to step up its game with regard to China? We've had now, you know, Blinken's uh, China speech. We've had the Indo-Pacific strategy. We've had the Indo-Pacific economic framework, which is announced. So there's a lot of stuff out there. We've had a lot of diplomatic visits to the region. We were a year and a half in, so there's actually close to two years now. So there's a lot out there. 
you know, where do you see the strengths and weaknesses? Yeah, perfect. So two questions. I'll take them one at a time on the differences between the Trump and Biden administrations. And I'm generalizing because obviously there are differences of opinions within each of those administrations about how to approach China. Um, from the Trump administration side, there were certain people who had a really knee-jerk reaction. China's the enemy. We just need to be tough, 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 tough. And not a lot of um, moderation around that and finding ways through the inevitable disagreements. I don't know anyone in the Biden administration who sees it that way. You know, the people leading that policy from Tony Blinken to Jake Sullivan to Kurt to Laura and lots of others who you and I, many others know and, and, and are friendly with. I think the goal is to find a peaceful way to manage China's rise and not to prevent China from rising. I know our Chinese friends often say that. Um, the policies, the attitude is different. The policies have been a little bit similar because of what we talked about before being so tough <laughs> with, with Xi Jinping in particular in, in power, having fewer interlocutors. You know, I think even during the Trump administration, the conversations between Treasury Secretary Mnuchin and Liu He, um, Wang Xishan was a great interlocutor. It's harder below the President Xi level for the U.S. to have good, meaty conversations with their Chinese part counterpart. I think yeah. Jake has it a little bit with his counterpart, but it's more difficult. So that's yeah. how I see the difference. You asked about the Biden administration and what more they could be doing on China policy. Well, there's a big leg of the stool that's missing <laughs> and they've tried it with IPEF, but trade is just missing. And you know this, you live in Singapore, the rest of the region is trading with each other and they're trading very happily, happily with the Chinese, right? The gravitational pull of the Chinese economy is really paying off in giving them influence in the rest of Asia, understandably so. Now, uh, there is a, a brick wall, I would say, of both Republicans and Democrats in Congress certain parts of each of those parties that have become increasingly protectionist. And mm. so there's not much to do on trade. And so when I look at IPEF, you know, yeah. it's not awesome, but it's the best we could do under difficult circumstances. Right. Right. And I think what it's meant to be is a side and backdoor to opening up access over time and getting us back in the game in Asia in the trade and economic side. So the digital yeah. commerce agreement across 13 countries, I think is a significant step forward. It helps with some of the technology, friendshoring, the things we're talking about. So that I think is, is a limited step, but a good thing the Biden administration is doing. Here's another big difference between the Biden administration and the Trump administration. Trump, I think, gets credit. He deserves a lot of credit for calling out the, the, um, the technology race that's on between the U.S. and China. Because I think a lot of folks, especially here, I live in Silicon Valley, people were very happy to do business with the Chinese and maybe a little bit naive about what was going on on the other side. So mm -hmm. Trump deserves some credit for that. His administration did mostly what I would call defense, try to build the moat, <laughs> increase the export controls, 
uh, create a new CFIUS, making it harder for Chinese to invest in some of our most sensitive companies. The Biden administration and Congress, to its credit, I'm going to praise the U.S. Congress here, has done the second piece of this, which is the most important, which is standing ourselves up to compete. Mm. You know, it's not about tearing China down. Let's bring it on. Let's have a race. That's fun. That's interesting. Yeah. Frankly, it'll help the world. But on the technology piece, I think we've done a lot with the CHIPS Act, and I know we'll talk about it in a minute, to stand ourselves up. You know, you, you've been out in the front on this, Anya, and you've been talking about this for some time. Uh, you were part of the Asia Society's bipartisan working group on science and technology in U.S.-China relations. You wrote in 2019 for the Financial Times an article saying the West needs a positive response to China's technology challenge. So um, message received, uh, it sounds like. Um, you also wrote the U.S. You know, was primarily focused on competing in technology by cutting off its competitors, in particular China. Um, and that the U.S. needs an offensive strategy. And so, you know, uh, compliments to you for being out in front and leading those uh, those discussions and those decisions. Um, while we're on that, uh, let, let's just talk about chips for a second, and then I'll shift to, to Ukraine before we open it up to uh, Q&A. You mentioned, um, of course, the CHIPS Act, uh, which was just passed. There's been the Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act. There's been um, other legislation crafted around, uh, you know, AUKUS, for example, um, EU Trade and Technology Council, just to name a few. These uh, domestic and international efforts to compete logically, um, why, you know, how can you, how can the U.S. and its allies and partners up their game even more? Are these important steps? But is there more to do in your view? What's what do we do next? Yeah, thank you for asking it that way. Um, we've come a long way, frankly, longer than, I, it wasn't just me, there was like a chorus of us um, calling for this. And thankfully the chorus has has won. <laughs> so for, for once we did something really positive on a bipartisan basis in the US Congress, it was pretty fantastic. And look, around the edges, there's probably gonna be some money wasted. That's what happens when there's industrial policy, but the direction of the CHIPS Act is exactly right. And let me just describe it in a bit more detail. So the core part of the act actually gives a lot of money, 39 billion to help the domestic semiconductor industry, especially to build some fabs here in the United States. Now, that's not a whole lot of money. That's probably three to four months of capital spend in that industry. Not very, you know, this is a hugely capital intensive industry. It also importantly does has 11 billion for research and development, which is important. We need to stay at the cutting edge of this. And what's the favorite, my favorite part of this CHIPS and Science Act is there's a huge amount of funding for better domestic US science and technology R&D. And that is an area where we led the world. Frankly, we were world leading during the entire Cold War. We used to spend 2% of our GDP on federal R&D at the height of the Cold War come down and down and down. Now, private companies spend a lot, but they do it in things that, you know, they care about the best search algorithm, not necessarily what the national security of the United States should worry about. So that's a really important piece. Frankly, 
probably more important than the subsidies for, for chips. Um, so we've done a lot, and I think we should congratulate ourselves on that. What's next? The big missing piece, and it's not for lack of trying, is this stuff has to be international. So when I look at the export controls in the US, they're now pretty tough, especially on things like semiconductor equipment going to China. But what happens if the American companies can't sell to the Chinese semiconductor companies? Well, then the Dutch sell or the Japanese sell or the Korean sell. Yeah. So the next thing is to really have a strategy that incorporates our allies in really targeted, small, narrow things. And I want to say this as a, this is a very important point. We don't want to cut off all technological trade with China. We don't want to cut off all tech cooperation with China. We're not going to be an island. We all benefit when we do a lot of these things together, but there's certain really cutting edge things and things that are at the intersection of national security and technology that we need to be a little more careful about. This is the small yards, tall fences concept, basically. Right. Is that what you're describing? That's right. We've built a yeah. bigger yard and in some ways to the detriment of our own industry. Yeah. We've got questions coming in on Ukraine, and it's also the one topic I wanted to talk to you about that we haven't hit yet. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Ukraine here, and we'll hit some of the uh, listeners' questions. Um, obviously, a serious crisis there. Uh, President Putin, as everyone knows, launched this unprovoked invasion of, a so of the sovereign country of Ukraine. Um, largest land war in Europe since World War II. We're more than six months into it. 10,000 Ukrainian soldiers have died. Um, gov Ukraine government estimates put that figure there. Um, 40,000 Russians uh, reportedly have died. The, the war has wreaked havoc on the global economy, putting pressure on energy prices. Uh, in particular, it's taken a toll on European economy. Um, China, for its part, has you know adopted this uh, fairly nuanced or what they describe as a sort of a balanced approach. They've condemned NATO and the U.S., not Russia, for provoking the conflict. Um, they maintain as much economic cooperation as they can with, our, with, with Russia without violating the sanctions. Uh, and they've stopped short of providing Russia with military aid. Nevertheless, China and Russia continue to engage. They're engaging in military drills. They've got this uh, these uh, Vostok uh, exercises going to be held next week. You've written about this as well. 2018, you wrote in The Atlantic that a true Chinese-Russian axis is still far from reality. And I want to check with you first yep. to see if that is still your view, because the relationship's gotten even stronger since 2018. How strong do you see the China-Russia relationship right now? Is it growing stronger or is it growing weaker uh, in the context of the war in Ukraine? What's your sense on that? It's growing stronger. And four years is a long time <laughs> since that article was written. And, you know, part of what the West has done since 2018 is, frankly, create incentives for China and Russia to get closer together <laughs> because both have been more isolated by the West. That's not to say that we could have done it necessarily in a different way. But the most worrying part that's new about Russia and China, you know, eternal friendship and the all-weather friendship is how closely their general staffs coordinate and how closely their militaries coordinate. It used to be sort of exercises that didn't mean much. Now I think they mean a little bit more 
But, you know, this is a very volatile time in the international system and a lot can happen. I'm not sure if we're talking four years from now, whether we'll have an axis of China and Russia or whether the Chinese will have a little bit of buyer's remorse that they attach themselves so closely to uh, Vladimir Putin, who is, you know, showing himself to be a homicidal maniac. <laughs> and, and they may regret a little bit that they are so closely attached to him in particular, uh, rather than to Russia. So um, remains to be seen. You laid out perfectly what's going on behind the scenes between China and Russia. We read them the riot act. So as best we can tell right now, they're not yet supplying military materiel to the Russians, which is good. Uh, mm -hmm. When I talk to, to the extent I still can, to Chinese businessmen, Chinese financiers, they're more focused on the West. They don't yeah. see Russia as a very big or growing market. And so they'd rather not have secondary sanctions placed on them. That means they won't be able to do business with the West. So let's keep it that way. And on this question, in your view, how should the U.S. respond to this China-Russia alignment? Should the U.S. treat China and Russia as an immutable alliance and therefore try to confront both of them at the same time? Or should the U.S. treat their challenges differently and maybe try to leverage any differences between them to drive wedges between them? What's the your second, sense? Yeah, Absolutely the second part. Mm -hmm. Look, right now, you're not seeing a lot of wedges, but they'll come up. <laughs> There'll be difficulties in the relationship. And I think right now, we're rightfully opposing Russia with all our might, sort of going to war with them. That is the right thing to do. Uh, we are being very careful about China. And I just want to say this again. I think from the U.S. side, there is an open hand there to work with China and to manage our differences. Nobody that I know in the US government wants a war with China or wants conflict. So and frankly, no one wants war with Russia either. So I think um, treating them as an immutable alliance doesn't do us any favors. Okay, we've got about five minutes, couple questions from the audience. One on uh, the, the, the um, political events coming up here in the fall. We've got the Chinese 20th Party Congress and the United States has uh, its midterm elections. Um, and there's a couple of questions in here about the impact of those two events on the bilateral relationship. Um, how do you see or expect relations to shift or evolve once, or will they, uh, or will things stay the same once we get beyond those two events? What's your sense on that? Yeah, great question. And Paul, you know this as, as well as I do, but. Um, very hard for both sides to have real meaningful conversations between their leaders before those two big political events happen. I worry that if the Republicans win both the House and the Senate, and it's looking less and less likely, but if they win both, the Chinese will say, well, Biden is out of steam. He's a lame duck. We're just going to wait him out. And it'll be hard to get anything done even in the last two years of a Biden administration. I think that would be a mistake um, because there's a lot of work that we and China can and must do together. So I would encourage our Chinese friends to keep the dialogue open, to reopen the dialogue. Um, because this is our 
best chance really to find a managed way through these continual crises. Um, you know, from the, the party Congress that's coming up, it's looking pretty clear that Xi Jinping is gonna get his third term. Underneath that, who's on the standing committee? Looks like they're gonna be mostly allies of Xi, but no one knows. There's a lot of Kremlinology happening there that I won't get into right now. But I think it's just that the problem with both of our political calendars is that makes it very hard for both sides to do business in a thoughtful way. We've got a couple questions uh, on the Middle East. I want to sort of combine them. Um, you know, we, I've, we, I've seen reports that, that suggest she is going to go to Saudi Arabia as, for, as his first overseas trip since the pandemic began. Um, as you know, Anya, in recent years, Beijing's been making diplomatic and economic inroads into the Middle East through its Belt and Road Initiative. At the same time as the U.S. shifts its focus to uh, the Indo-Pacific and now, of course, the war in, in Ukraine. What do you make of China's strategy to gain influence in the Middle East and how can the U.S., how should, what should the United States do to, to respond or to step up its game? Yeah. You're absolutely right, or the questioner is absolutely right, that the countries in the Middle East, especially the Sunni kingdoms, are being courted by China, by Russia, and by the United States. And the US should not take its eye off the ball in that particular region. I think the um, Emirates in particular felt very upset when after those big attacks um, from the Yemenis, <laughs> funded by Iran, uh, we didn't do very much. And um, memories are long in the Middle East and people have been quite offended. So I think Biden's trip there did a little bit to repair relations, but I'm in the Middle East quite a bit. And I worry that there's a lack of trust now. There's a feeling that the United States will talk to the Sunni kingdoms when it's convenient for us, but criticize them publicly is that I would find appropriate and understandable, but when it's not convenient. And mm -hmm. China doesn't do that. China just wants to trade. And they bring a lot of investment. I've seen it. They bring a lot of infrastructure. And it's understandable for the Middle East to want to hedge their bets. It's understandable for them to have a reasonable relationship with Russia. So I think rather than seeing this as a pure contest where China's influence wins or US, we've got to understand that this is a complex region. We need to stay engaged. We need to understand what parts of the Middle East we can usefully engage in and help with. And I would say one thing, because I travel there um, twice or so a year for commercial reasons. And so I see a part of the Middle East that never gets expressed in US newspapers, I would say. And that is a vibrant, middle class that's not focused on oil, young tech startups, people just trying to live a normal life. <laughs> and we're not engaging those people. The Chinese are, right? And so to see that other side of the Middle East, of people just trying to make it happen, uh, I think would do us a lot of good. In our final minute, I'm gonna continue on the globe and try to squeeze in around the globe, try to squeeze in one more question. Africa. Is, is another region where China has prioritized diplomatic and economic efforts. Recently, China supported the African Union's bid to gain a seat at the G20, which I found interesting. 
China-Africa ties are often based on common understanding of developing countries. They, they, China and many countries in Africa, of course, see themselves as developing. And many countries in the region have signed the Belt and, Belt and Road MOUs. There's also a strategic angle to China-Africa relations. The continent is rich, as you know, in natural resources, uh, and it's supposed to be the most populous region by, uh, in the world by 2050. What, in your view, I mean, how have you seen uh, China's relations with Africa evolve? And how should the U.S. be thinking about this? Um, and how should the U.S. be thinking about competing, frankly, in an increasingly important but often neglected part of the world? Right. Perfect question to end on. Africa is critically important and same issue. When you look at the U.S. news, it's it's usually talking about the Chinese influence there, the environmental degradation, the poverty. When I go to Africa, you see that, but you also see a burgeoning middle class. You see tech startups. You see young people trying to be part of the world economy. Let's engage that Africa and let's do it consistently because those guys don't want corrupt contracts, right? And yes, the Belt and Road is very important in Africa and the Chinese have made a lot of inroads but you can also in a lot of ways see the pendulum swinging back. I mean, when you go to South Africa five years ago and how close they were to the Chinese versus now, it's a sea change. And if we continue to engage the parts of African societies that want to grow themselves in a normal way, that don't want corruption, that don't want environmental degradation, I think we're gonna be just fine. Well, Anya, in 45 minutes, uh, we covered a lot. And um, we talked Taiwan, Ukraine, US, China, Trump, Biden, um, Africa, Middle East, and gone around the globe. And I really want to thank you for your time uh, and, and for a terrific discussion. And I look forward to having you back uh, out in Beijing when we can get back to in-person uh, events there. But thank you very much for joining the discussion. It's always a pleasure. I'd love that. Thank you, Paul. And thank you all for being on this morning. Thanks to everyone for listening. And remember, we'll post this as an episode of our China in the World podcast. And you'll be able to go see the whole recording if you didn't catch all of it. Thanks again. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the China in the World podcast. For more episodes and research, please go to carnegieendowment.org. This episode was produced by Nathaniel Schur with assistance from Tsai Jing Yuan and Mike Tiernan. The music was composed by Spencer Barnett.